0: Welcome to Three Night Weekend, where we prepare you for the weekend to come with the help of gaming industry luminaries. I'm Shane Satterfield, and you can find me on the world's most advanced gaming website, Sifted, at Sifted.net, or on Twitter, at Dinfire. If you want to support the show, head to Patreon.com slash Sifted. The show goes live every Friday for our patrons, and the following Monday for everyone else. This week, we're talking with Victor Lucas. He launched his first gaming website in 1995, and his first gaming TV show in 1997, before moving on to networks like G4 and syndication all across North America. And he did it all from the Great White North in Canada. He's a pioneer and a trailblazer who has managed to stay relevant for decades. All right, here we are with the person I consider, the godfather of video game television, Victor Lucas. Now you've not just done this in the US, you're actually from Canada, which makes what you've done throughout your career even more amazing. Victor, welcome (laughs) to Three Night Weekend.
1: Thank you, Shane. It's awesome to be here on a show with you. I think this is the first time we've ever collaborated on anything like that. I mean, we've definitely run into each other all over the place, and we've had lots of great conversations, but I don't think we've done a show together.
0: Well, Victor, a big problem is that you've always been like the on-camera guy, the upfront guy. Different parts of my career, I've, I've been that, but then I would go and just be like a producer or just an editorial guy. Um, When we first kind of knew each other, we were both working at G4. Well, you kind of, you were producing Judgment Day for G4. I was working on X-Play as the editorial guy, kind of for the whole network. Um, And so we knew each other tangentially. And then I went to game trailers, and that's where we started, like, really getting to know each other at various review events, which don't even exist anymore. Um, But all the big games you and I would get together after we play and have a drink and just kind of sit and talk about the industry, things that were going on, particularly related to, sort of television, gaming television and video production inside uh, the industry. Because that's a thing that you and I have always had in common from day one. So being from Canada, um, which I think for a lot of American gamers, they don't really understand what it was like maybe growing up being a gamer in Canada. Did you guys get like all the same consoles? Like, did you get like the the Atari 2600 and the Intellivision and the ColecoVision. And were you getting all those consoles like the same time we were getting them here in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the benefits of, uh, you know, living... In Canada and growing up in Canada, we have socialized medicine and socialized education. Mm -hmm. And both of those are really beneficial in terms of giving everybody kind of an even footing, um, economically and giving you social skills, integrating into the community. And there's also this built in kind of, um, uh, politeness that canada is famous for and that's a so real the stereotypes thing.
0: are true is that what you're saying yeah,
1: yeah <laughs> I but did, I, I agree I, with you I, I know a lot
0: of canadians i play hockey <laughs> with a lot of them or i did before all this insanity happened with the pandemic
1: and they are yeah. literally the nicest people that i know in my life i mean it, yeah it's, so it's a good setup to you know because you know it, it's a it's a good place to be from and I am very grateful for that. My mom moved us from uh, the east coast of Canada from Ontario to Vancouver BC which was kind of um, like the frontier of Canada it's kind of you know <laughs> it, it, it's a big city in in the grand scope of things but I grew up in the 80s and uh, it, it certainly wasn't the size and scale that it is now you know mm-hmm. it wasn't quite the Hollywood North that it is now yep. and famous for its skiing and for all of the celebrities that come through here. Um, so it was very idyllic to grow up here and video games enthralled me right from the beginning. Um, I was just blown away by, you know, entertainment in general. Star Wars was incredibly influential for me and Superman, the movie and Indiana Jones and the alien movie, like all of that stuff. Sound was like an up.
0: American eighties kid to me.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're all coming up with the same thing. And that's the other side of that is that we get this kind of, you know, social um, uh, grounding living in Canada, but we also get the incredible media that permeates from America. We get all the American stations. They were all across all of our uh, our, our cable packages. And, you know, with rabbit ears, we could get all the Washington stations as well. Um, and so we got this kind of pop culture dunk, but it wasn't quite as doggy dog as I think a lot of American Um, cities can be, Mm -hmm. you know, and quite as aggressive. And so, yeah, I I got all of the education and all the perks of what was happening in entertainment in, in the U S. But I also, I, I I think um, I have a collaborative nature as many Canadians do, like it's built in, in me to kind of find a way to work with people. And um, I think that helped me quite a bit when I was having conversations with, with uh, broadcasters and, Mm -hmm. and sponsor partners um, and quite funnily, enough, you know, funnily enough, I don't know. If funnily is a word, but I, you know, <laughs> I like funny it. enough, <laughs> I, I, um, I it, it. We actually needed. So, we we got American broadcasters to sign on with Electric Playground first in uh, in the 90s, in the mid 90s. And because we got American broadcasters that wanted the show, we were able to loop in Canadian broadcasters because mm-hmm. they would say, "Well, wait, you guys are selling the show into Canada already? Oh my god! Okay, oh yeah, we'll take it." And then uh-huh. they would have a contract prepared for us. And so we actually had a, a U.S. placement in syndication in, in a bunch of different stations down the West coast of the U S uh, prior to us locking down a national string of stations in Canada. And uh, I think it was just, uh, y- you know, I, I was an actor before this and I was a were. waiter. Let's yeah. talk
0: about how you got into games.
1: So okay. did you
0: go, what did you go to? Did you go to college? Did you,
1: yeah, I went to uh, the uh, the University of Victoria in Victoria, B.C. in Canada here, um, and I took theater as my major. Okay, and uh, and I, then I took English as my minor, and I was you know thinking That's about the perfect attention.
0: combo for what you ended up doing.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I didn't quite know that because yeah, I I re- yeah I really focused on acting, and I actually mm-hmm. got in trouble while I was in the theater department there because I was acting all the time. I was in a lot of scenes and a lot of the fourth year students in the theater department were also directing their own little movies and their own stage stuff. And they kept casting me in things. It was incredibly... um uh, gratifying and, uh, flattering to be kind of in demand as an actor, as you know, I just had started in theater there at, at the university. Uh, but you're supposed to really sort of soak it all up. You're supposed to go in and learn about costume and stagecraft. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't give that much attention. And I got, you know, I got some, uh, admonishment. Some people got a little bit angry with me that I didn't do that. Um, and, uh, but I did fine. I, I, I just rushed through all of that work, but then I really decided that I wanted to focus on acting. So I went to, um, a different school, which was just an acting school and did some theater. And, uh, I got, uh, work before I graduated. I was in, uh, an episode of an old cowboy show called border town. Um, I got a, a, a stage play that became a movie, um, with the same, director and lead actor in the film but i didn't get the film but i i got the the play and so i was i was making money and i was part of the union and i thought okay i'm gonna be an actor forever and while i was acting i i found my way back to games which had been always something that i loved when i was a kid but i had kind of moved away from as i'd gone to school and studied Mm -hmm. different things and uh, i actually was on a, a tour across um uh, across bc and a lot of canada across british columbia and a lot of canada in this uh children's theater tour and i just loaded up on game boy and atari Lynx and game gear uh games that i was playing in the in the tour van all over the all over the country and that's it, i think that was this the uh was that the i guess sport? my way back in well <laughs> i had already had it you know, in the '80s, I, I spent all my paper route money on video games. I used to I had everything: Atari Twenty Six Hundred, the ColecoVision, the Atari computers. I had a Vectrex. You can see the Vectrex that I bought when I was a kid back then. Uh, I, I've just always been fascinated by them, and I used to read Antic and you know, video games magazine and all. Now, of did the you get 80s. like
0: EGM and magazines like that up in Canada? They did. They make all it of them. up there. Okay.
1: Oh yeah, all of them. And and uh, you know, honestly, I, th- that was. That was my education of the people too you uh-huh. know and when i trace back i mean that was the impetus for electric playgrounds i wanted to put the people on the people that were making these things on camera because i felt like the world didn't know them at all and there was just such a great mystery about how video games were made and that's what ep was all about right from the beginning but i i loved them as a kid um i took a little bit of a break as i went Through you know, sort of work, and I was I was in school a bit, and then I came back as an actor. And I used to use video games and and make my acting teachers laugh. That I they they would I would pull emotion from how I was playing these games into scenes and to you know things that I would do. And you know I'd be super angry, and they'd say, "Well, where did you get that?" Well, so I was playing something last night, and I just couldn't beat this boss, (laughs) and it was just driving me crazy. And I I I, I channeled that, Uh and uh, so it was a great kind of. uh, I guess a marriage of everything. But I, had I known when I was in theater school and university that I was going to become a producer and I was going to be in charge of a, a you know a team of people and focused on all the minutia as you have been, uh, I might have taken all of the behind the scenes stuff <laughs> a little focus bit more on seriously. Some of the other stuff a little yeah. more, right? <laughs> And, and you know, what's funny is I made a, a a conscious decision to kind of move away from acting after speaking with a lot of, um, you know, veteran actors that I became friends with. It's a great community, mm-hmm. but they talked about being vagabonds and never having a home and always right. traveling. Mm-hmm. And I, that just seemed like, oh, that's going to be nerve wracking. And of course I ended up traveling six months of the year. for like <laughs> but At least we are always <laughs> going to like San Francisco and LA or whatever. No, I mean, one of the beautiful things we went all over the damn world. My wife and i got married in uh in venice italy because we wow. were traveling to uh uh to europe for uh assassin's you know... creed
0: or whatever yeah well actually we <laughs> well, back then it was probably spent... something else but
1: oh, yeah we spent the money to to get out there you know mm-hmm. it was part of the production budget on on the show we wanted to go where stuff was made so we would go to guilford and talk to peter molyneux and oh, you. uh you know and and we visited david cage i forget the name of his company the uh you, you know, I mean, it's not work. fair to say it was just L.A.
0: and San Francisco, because in the early part of my career, I literally traveled the world.
1: All yeah, over you're era, everywhere. All over. Yeah, I was in Montreal all the time. I was in Montreal yeah. as often as I was Everybody in was. Montreal. Yeah, it's as far away as any place, you know, it's it's yeah. it's a long distance away from Vancouver. Uh, and I loved all of that. I mean, that, and I still do. You know, it's it's an incredible privilege to. It is. Uh, yeah. Fly to Japan and interview developers, and it and
0: did wear me out after people. a while. I did it like hardcore, like the first three yep. years of my career, where I was because the guys who were my senior they had already burned out on it, and so yeah. they're like, "Here's the new guy who hasn't been everywhere." Five or 10 times already. And he probably wants yeah. to go. To, and you're right. I did want to go to all those places. You have to. Yes. And so, you know, going the first time I ever went to Europe, it was for work. I was like, wow, I'm in freaking London because I'm working at GameSpot. You know, it's, It takes a while for it to wear off, but after a while, it does. I think eventually start to wear off.
1: Well, you tell me if this was true for you. Isn't it a a, a total treat to share that with people that you hire, right? Oh, absolutely. To be able to pass it down. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And I didn't. You get get some people
0: who don't want to do it, who are like homebodies, and they hate it. (laughs) Like I've had employees that are like, I don't really want to go to Europe, and I'm like, what?
1: (laughs) Are you crazy? We had a cameraman once that kind of got really pissed. My wife and I were traveling because my wife has helped me through all of this. We've been together for 30 years at this point And uh-huh. there would be no EP without my wife. Yeah. Um, and she's helped me run the business and all of it. But uh, we were traveling uh with our cameraman and we were having a great time but uh, he had just had enough because he was mm-hmm. like a couple weeks ago he had been in stockholm and you know he was he just came like, home oh for two God. days barely got over yeah. the jet
0: lag, and then <laughs> headed back to like germany or yeah
1: yeah yeah, it can be tough and, and, i mean
0: there's no doubt about it and you don't, and a lot of times you don't get to see the city that's the problem it's like you true, see the true. airport and you see the drive from the airport to whatever hotel that you go to and then that's it absolutely and so yeah. After a while, it does start to wear out, but you don't want to sound ingrateful like I I'm still flabbergasted at the places I got to see just. Because well, aren't you
1: hanging on all of that now, you know, in this year of covid like my wife and I talk about this all the time, you know, that that uh, uh, thanks to this crazy adventure, we we have these memories of all of these yes. locations. And my daughter, who's who's nine, she's been to New York a few times and yeah. London and Paris. And and uh, we went to the con film or with the, the, it was MIPCOM. So we went to con to interview TV creators. Cause that's the yeah. other thing too, is that right from the get go, I called it electric playground. So the heart and soul of it has always been video games. But I I love this notion of pairing video games with other kinds of entertainment and other kinds of subjects because yeah. I feel like it lifts all the boats yeah, and it puts it does it, it puts games right beside, uh, you know the MCU or whatever you know crazy electric vehicle might be getting made or whatever Apple you were smart about
0: choosing play. the name too because it's not tied directly to video games it's like yeah Sifted. I want- like I could have called like my website like video game sifter or whatever but. Yeah. I had bigger plans than that you know i want sifted to become a network that starts sifting content from entertainment and sports and politics and all that so uh if Wonderful. you aim a little bit higher it's always better to be a little bit more general when you start to name stuff and then totally. so you you started electric playground the website in 95 right
1: uh yeah yep. Yeah, we launched in 1995 and, and was it just uh, all
0: just print and stuff like that for the first couple years
1: we had, you know, very simplistic little uh, gifs, little tiny graphics. It was a gray background yeah. um, when we first launched. There were no backgrounds. Um, yeah. I can't even remember the name of the. Was it was a Mozilla. I can't remember the browser. GeoCities,
0: and there was like Netscape, and all these crappy. Yeah, it was
1: Netscape. It. Yeah, and so I was programming HTML and sticking all the stuff in, trying to figure out how to do all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I made a bunch of animated gifs. We actually, I actually made the website. I've told this a couple of times. But I made the website for ASC Games. Um, they used to ha- be a publisher in the video game industry. Yeah. They made a game called One. Um, we did a contract with them, and I actually did all built of the their artwork. website. I built their website, <laughs> yeah. Which you know, I didn't. I wasn't a programmer. I didn't have like training. Yeah, Dreamweaver that,
0: it, and a dream. Yeah,
1: <laughs> there were no Dreamweavers back then. It was all from. just, I, I built my
0: first site yeah. in '97 with Dreamweaver. And it was basically just like Photoshop, but building a website. And it just handled like all the HTML code, like under the hood for you. You Just like move stuff around with a cursor. (laughs) And yeah, you were even ahead of me. Like, and I mean, electric play.com, that might've been one of the first like three or four gaming websites in the world, Victor.
1: Like, yeah, yeah, I, I think it was. And, and, um, uh, Happy Puppy, I think, was the big yep. one back then. You and know? IGN and, showed
0: uh, up. Nintendo had like its own website, but it was like a BBS board, basically just a yeah. place where you could go and post stuff. Like back then, you'd click on a like on a link and you'd watch the images slowly appear on the web page. Totally. Like it was, it's amazing that we fought through all that stuff to build websites because I launched mine in '97, and at that point, there were probably six gaming websites <laughs> that were on yeah. the internet. And IGN didn't launched at that point, but there many you things. know what's
1: crazy? Yeah, Like we went to the first E3 in 1995, and I think if I look back um, at at touchstones and milestones for EP, that really solidified. That really kind of gave me the impetus. And it was a choice because I had a production company in Vancouver that wanted to partner with me on Electric Playground, and they were going to help shop it and and find partners, you know, broadcast partners. But they wanted um, like fifty or sixty percent stake in the property and they wanted me to pay them to show how serious I was about working with them. <laughs> and, and so which is understand, I mean, it's kind I of douchebaggy, but, but yeah. it's understandable if you feel like you've got the clout and you don't right. want some, and you, can you know, make I'd never business produced happen. anything. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I said, Nope. And I spent that money on us going to E3 And we shot like crazy and interviewed all kinds of people. But what's nuts is that in 95, we actually posted videos of those interviews on our website. That's crazy. And so they they took forever and they were postage stamp size. But you could watch, you know, I met John Tobias and Ed Boone then and talked to them about Mortal Kombat on the Super Nintendo. I mean, you may have
0: some of the only video footage of E395, the first E3.
1: Literally. Yeah. I mean, we had a a real broadcast team for hours running around and it was amazing it was incredible my i three was i have was the, I have the best it. archive on earth shane i'm, I bet you I'm convinced do. of it in this I be, space i bet you and do. and what drives me crazy is is the um apathy that i can constantly encounter from people that should know better yeah and i have lots of discussions with people that are wanting to build networks and want to go big with, you know, and it drives me nuts. And that's, you know, honestly, that's why I just say, eh, you know, I, I, I go down the road a little bit and then I just say, well, I, now I can, I can create the content I want to create and put it out there. You should but, start yeah, we, uh,
0: publishing some of that stuff. Make sure you're watermarking it so people can't snag it.
1: Because I guess you, we should you, be you're doing the that, only yeah.
0: archive, like maybe even launch like a new well, channel that's like EP retro or something like that.
1: You know what I want to do is partner with, uh, a group that can really do it justice. You know, yeah. You know, because it's work and I if people work. ask me and to post all work. the stuff all yeah. the time. It's legwork. I, I don't want to just throw it up there. I want to have it all database properly. I want to mm-hmm. be able to have people search for specific locations and companies and people. I want to integrate it into new material, but that's the other side too, man. Like I don't want to just be thought of as, as somebody that made stuff before. I like making yeah. new things. Yep. And I, I look at what's out there and I think there's tons of room for the way that I make things, you know? Yep. And I also keep hearing that people don't want TV on the web and they want stuff that's whatever. But everybody's just trying to reverse engineer television and find a way to get as close to TV as they can afford and put on the web and, Without the uh, and kids on thinking YouTube. That
0: is linear television. Yeah. Yeah,
1: but it is. It's and, almost like there's and, a
0: backlash against production values online. A little bit,
1: and I get it a bit, it's um, almost like but I also the f-
0: more dirty it looks, the more people like it. <laughs> it's kind well, of Well, then you look great. at somebody like
1: Cape K- K- MKHB, you know, and some of the uh, and even Linus Tech Tips, they they spend a fortune on some of their content and they they've bought a lot they've of They've done well. Uh, but you look yeah, at like something like
0: of- NoClip, their production values are great and they do yeah. fine, but yeah. it's like one of their videos does 60,000 views. And then here's some dude that just played Zelda with one arm behind his back. And it does 8 million views. Like, yeah. And it's like, he, he has videos down in the corner, this big, like the size of a postage stamp and like the videos, like poorly, you know, captured. And it just doesn't matter. It's, it's an interesting landscape that we're in, but we'll get to all that. Um, so you yeah. launched the TV show in 97, which is just insane. Like, yeah. Because I ended up going to GameSpot in 2000 out of college. It was my first job, moved out to San Francisco. And at GameSpot, we were like supposedly, we were like the pipe, we were driving, trailblazing video coverage for games. And like our video reviews were like me sitting in front of a camera for like, 30 minutes talking about a game just off the top of my head. Like I had yeah. bullet points and I was just like, this is what I remember from these bullet points. And there was no structure to them. The, <laughs> the B roll was just random B roll running. But at the time, like that was the cutting edge stuff. Meanwhile, up in Canada, you had been making a TV show for like three years already.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: How did you, yeah, we, how did you do that? And how did you get it like on television in 1997? That's
1: crazy. <laughs> well, you know what I did is I had, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty good at, at making a logical, um, argument for something. You know, okay. I've always had that ability, um, to kind of sit down with people and, and, um, I pull myself out of the conversation and try to figure out how to make something work, you know, or and figure also out how to tell them what they want to hear. A little bit, you know, I can think back to, you know, my school age years and I didn't really struggle through it. And I watched my brother have a lot of issues and some of my friends, but it Mm -hmm. just felt like if you're just reasonable, you know, and I think that's what it is. I just like be reasonable with people and have a little bit of uh, understanding of what they want. And honestly, that's what I would say to anybody that's pitching anything is just, you know, really question what you can do for them because you're going to be solving a problem, right? Mm hmm. And so I just went and had discussions with uh, broadcasters and different potential production partners and nobody knew anything about this space, you know, and I was very clear, you know, it was very clear to me that it was, um, you know, this interesting environment, but it hadn't been tapped into. And that was the opportunity. And that opportunity, frankly, still exists and people are still freaked out and shocked about how to access this kind of information or present this kind of information, which is shocking to me 25 years later, quite frankly. yeah. Um, But I would just, uh, you know, I'd run them through the size economically of the business. I would say there are 20 different monthly magazines covering video games right now that you can walk into a store and pick up. Uh, there are basically television programs about every other thing that people are into, but there is nothing really diving deep into this. There were uh, examples of shows that we could point to um, that really didn't do the industry justice, really didn't go into the details or, or the minutia of how this the, you know, this wonderful art form was coming to be. Mm-hmm. And I, I honestly, I, I, I think I was as reasonable as I could be to say, look, there's an a concept here that fuses entertainment tonight, which was an incredibly successful continues to be in a successful magazine format, television property mm-hmm. uh, and Cisco and Ebert, which was the biggest yeah. movie review thing. Let's fuse those things into a program that takes people inside the world of games and objectively um, and honestly. And, and uh, uh, from, from an entertaining crazy, perspective, Vic, because
0: at that point, 1997, the yep. PlayStation had just launched. So
1: well, we hadn't. That's had what this, I was using. We I was using had, the PlayStation.
0: Right. But we hadn't had the great awakening yet where mm. suddenly it became socially acceptable for people over the age of 15 to play video games. Suddenly, well, Shane, I'll tell you the this. PlayStation, brother. there were M-rated games there were games that adults yes. only were supposed to play. And well, you and, you and that was part of it. This
1: too. Yeah, well, that was part of it because I would walk into rooms and people that weren't buying those magazines every month had this very clear idea in their mind that video games were sprite based and 2d and everything kind of looked similar Mm -hmm. and we kind of had hit a ceiling and saturated the market with games that had a fidelity that was you know now we can appreciate a lot more of the artistry in retrospect but back Mm -hmm. then it felt like it played out yeah yeah we'd seen a lot of that you know when the playstation was launching and the saturn was launching and the n64 was coming um that was the The uh, the artwork that I presented, I said, look, we're going to be playing games that are going to approach what people are going to the movie theaters to watch Mm -hmm. a Pixar film. We're going to be playing stuff that is fully three dimensional. We're going to be able to walk in every kind of direction that we want. We're going to have all kinds of new mobility and there's going to be a real artistry to the stories that they're going to tell. There should be television programming that uh, works with this footage and these people and presents these stories and people heard that and they saw the numbers and they saw the magazine covers and all of that information. They, they liked the brand. They like, they, they liked the pitch. They liked the people that I was presenting them. And, uh, and we were able to do it and our batting it's average crazy. was pretty, pretty good. You know, <laughs> we, we, not only were we able to bring in broadcasters, but also sponsors, which were incredibly important back then oh, as well. Yeah. And, and, uh, what was cool? One of our stations was KBHK in San Francisco, and I still have the the TV guide. It uh, has Drew Carey on the cover. He was doing the Drew Carey Show of the first episode when it aired in that market, and it awesome. rated really well. And they were wow. very happy with it. And I feel like the uh, uh, which it was like a UPN affiliate back then, uh-huh. but I feel like a lot of the tel- the uh, video game industry tuned in because we'd already been on the road. We'd already been shooting well, a lot of stuff be because
0: we- right around then 1999, 2000, you have the launch of tech TV, which, yep. and you have GameSpot TV, which is a TV style show uh, being produced at Ziff Davis. And then you yep. have sort of really the, the, the real birth of the big websites of GameSpot of IGN. Um, and then you finally have on tech TV, the first, I would argue the first real us based, gaming TV show, which is extended play with Adam Sessler as the host. Yeah. Um, and that's when everything kind of broke. But that's 2000 in the US. You were doing this in 1997, Vic. Like, <laughs> that's amazing, man. Like, I don't know if you even really understand how big of a deal it is, what you did. Um, uh,
1: uh, well, I, I did and I do, uh, but I feel like I did what I was supposed to do. You know, yeah. I remember it was a natural progression
0: to, for you because you started so damn early in 95. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah
1: man, it took and
0: me two years to get this going. Like, man, I'm dragging uh, my feet here. And oh, me. And,
1: and honestly, ahead. like I didn't go to high school reunions. I stopped talking about this thing. Like it, for yeah. me, it took forever for the concept to go. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I was I was in my 20s. I was like 27. and And I was really worried about being a, a guy that wanted to act and was still in, waitering, you know, not that either of those professions or those pursuits are are something to be ashamed of, right, but I right. really, I wanted to have, you know, some control over what my future and my destiny was going to be. And so yeah. I wrote down a hundred different ideas for businesses, and what I came back to was that there is an absence here for programming that would have because I used to watch this terrible show in Canada called Video and Arcade Top Ten, which was basically. An infomercial for whatever Nintendo was hawking, mm-hmm. at, you know that month, and they'd have kids playing games together. And I, th- I think this is just punishing. This, this can't be the state of how games are, con- you know, talked about in media. And I knew that that absence was an opportunity. And so, um, yeah, it, it was a, it was a, from my perspective, it was a long pursuit. I was in the in the restaurant. Game Informer did an article on us in like 1996 on the on the. <laughs> on the demo that we had put together and I'd posted it up on the bulletin board in our restaurant. And, and uh, like, I, I was spending all my time and all my money on trying to, and while my wife paid the bills and just took care of everything. I was mm-hmm. trying to do everything I could to make this thing a reality. And it finally did become that in 1997. And it felt, I remember walking home cause I didn't make any money. It took, it took many seasons of the show before I actually started to make any money of, uh you know any real money yeah. um but uh i remember walking home in, in when the show had aired and i walked from downtown and i crossed a bridge to go home to where where i lived and i was just crossing uh, the bridge and i just looked around the city and i went holy shit man i i i got a show on television how did that happen <laughs> it's great and 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 i yeah. never have lost that appreciation or that that yeah. uh uh, gratefulness that I you know, I still have it. I yeah. still like people that people give a crap about anything that I have to say is is uh, incredibly kind and and I'm I feel the great. same
0: way. Just this kid from Little Carlisle, Pennsylvania, you know, <laughs> and yeah. anyone cares about yeah. what I have to say about video games, every single person <laughs> matters. like it really does. <laughs> and then from from there, you started built your electric playground became big and it kept running. and then you kind you had a section inside the show called Reviews on the Run. Um, yep. And then you kind of broke that out into its own show, which yep. then was picked up by G4 and renamed to Judgment Day. Um, there's
1: a huge there's a big story in there. And, I, you know, I hate to you, you take so much of the time here. I feel like talk about me. There's so much to talk the-
0: about. I mean, that's why we're here. We're here to talk <laughs> about
1: you. Well, this is a crazy story. okay. so before G4, we had a great partnership with Discovery Science, and that was a a, a, a relationship that we built through a um, initial pitch meeting at the NatP television show, Mm -hmm. which is honestly where I secured um, a, a couple of other broadcasters as well. It's a big convention where, you know, it's like E3 for TV shows. And, um, we had met with discovery and they really liked the, the pitch and they thought, okay, well, here's a cool slant for a show. That's going to take people into the fusion of science and art, which fits within within the purview of this science kind of brand that they had. Mm -hmm. And it took a little bit of going back and forth, took about a year to put that deal together, but we launched on, on discovery science in 2001. And this is when discovery was really, you know, branching out They had the military channel, a bunch of other things. We did some stuff with the military channel too. Um, but, um, uh they really liked DP. they thought it was a really fun show they played it friday nights and uh, uh we had good viewership I, that was when i actually they focus tested the show and they wanted me to be in the show more which is something mm-hmm. that i hadn't really considered for myself i really thought that the stars were the the, the uh developers that we were interviewing and yeah, we had I Tommy Talarico
0: on the show a few weeks ago and he mentioned that he had to drag you out in
1: front of yeah. the camera yeah. Well, I got the focus test from, from the network and Tommy totally agreed with it. And, and so in season six, which was our first season, I'm not in the, up until then, I'm not in the show all that much. But then in season seven, I started co-hosting with Tommy because people like the repartee and the, yeah. and the, the back and forth that we you guys are have. a great combo. You were the I, I love working guy with
0: to yeah. identity.
1: <laughs> we both we both love working with each other. We we know our roles are are we know what our roles are and we know what our you know our true identities are in that space. And what I, was that like working other.
0: with Tommy? Because and I talked to Tommy about this as well. And we already got his perspective on it. But what was it like? Because I was working editorial at G four on yeah. X play, and I shared this with Tommy as well. A lot of times, I was getting blamed for Tommy's reviews. Um, oh. I was the visible editorial person working at G4 and a lot of people just assumed that his opinions were a part of X-Play or a part of G4 in general. And so a lot oh, of times hilarious. we had to answer for his reviews and his review scores, which, you know, I think some people would say were kind of out there compared to what people were seeing on X-Play or they were seeing on GameSpot or IGN at the time. He had his yeah. own way of looking at games. And I think that's what made the show work Was because, you were sort of the more traditional guy who looked at games yep. the same way that X-Play did or GameSpot or IGN. Tommy was kind of the guy who just kind of looked at a game and was like, I like that or I don't like it. And just kind of had more, more knee-jerk reactions maybe to games than more of a thoughtful reaction. What was that like kind of working with, with someone else who had such differing opinions than you on games?
1: Well, it's it's a bunch of things. Um, first of all, it was uh, frustrating and maddening sometimes just as yeah. working with. Because you can know, see it. You, you would re- let it
0: go on camera. And I think that's what made the show great with watching your yeah. reaction sometimes to his opinions on games that you obviously were not in agreement with.
1: But here's what I understood then and more um, uh, and, and more understand more fully now is that Tommy had this uh, really cool perspective on the way that he looked at video games because he made them. Uh And he did he didn't make that he didn't review the game with any kind of sense of awe. You know, there was no there was not this extra layer of like, oh, the magic is here. Right. He always reviewed them with a real understanding of the mechanics that and the and the uh, the know how that went into them. And so Uh none of the stuff that I think can cloud us as journalists and as just as fans, people that have never made games but love them. Uh uh, He didn't have that. He had the insider's perspective on that. But I also really understood and appreciated that there are a lot of people that play games um, casually and they play them to escape stuff for a little while. They don't play 80 hours of a JRPG. They 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 wouldn't suffer the intricacies of Knights of the Old Republic. <laughs> right. And Tommy spoke to those folks. Yes, and absolutely. And that, that is a mainstream kind of uh, way to think about how to build your content. And it was a real... Eye-opening kind of an awareness thing for me as we started to grow the programming that, that that's the that's what we're supposed to do with the show is appeal to as many people as possible, yep. not just focus in on, you know, what we all, you know, in our community kind of agree on, but to bring people in. And so yep. people... And that's what I did when I, you know, when reviews on the run eventually went at, daily is I looked to put teams together that had a great relationship, but had their own perspectives. And I really understood that every individual that was going to be on the show reviewing content was going to find their own. Uh, not, they're not just fans, but people that, that kind of identified with their tastes and their right. choices. And I kept really kind of it's kind um, of like the review crew on EGM where
0: they'd have yeah. like one guy who wrote the big review. And then I'd give like a blurb to three other people who maybe didn't play the whole game, but they played a good bit of it. And they're like, this is in one paragraph what I think about the game. And a lot of times it clashed with the guy who wrote the main review in
1: EGM. It's so important, you know, and I got that feedback all the time from viewers out there. People would Mm -hmm. have their own uh, favorite team or their own favorite reviewer. And um you, you know it, it's really about sort of connecting with that identity and I used to have real discussions with the reviewers it's like I don't I, we don't really want to know how you play these games we can get that information quite easily you know just mm-hmm. by looking at the footage you can kind of understand it what we want to know is emotionally how you felt when you played these games and because people endeavored to put that into the work and I put their faces in front of the camera which I think was incredibly important and gave everybody identity and uh, you know, uh, you know, like intrinsic value as an individual within the content, which I think is something that the video game industry really struggles with both in the manufacturer of content of game content and in the editorial around game content. I think that people should get that, that moment to kind of pit themselves beside what they're talking about a little mm-hmm. bit more, you okay. know, I would argue um, that that's but, kind
0: of what happens now that it's kind of swung almost too far in the well, other direction where it's more about now it's, the, the person now than the game, <laughs>
1: Well, it, what's happened now is everybody's got a channel, right? But mm-hmm. I we had this beautiful, you know, built-in family, you know, that people mm-hmm. got to know and and we all appreciated it, but I appreciated it more than everybody because I knew how precious it was and I was also having to do all the deals behind the scenes and I <laughs> I knew I knew how tenuous it always it was and yeah. and you know, I knew how precious it was. Yeah. Uh but I also have a recent um anecdote about this as well i just had david jaffe on my podcast on vick's basement my podcast and jaffe reminds me a lot of tommy tellarico he is, he is a, very uh,
0: similar you're right yeah. no bullshit
1: guy <laughs> yeah. and he has he wants none of this you know like um putting people on pedestals bs yeah you know he doesn't want the hero worship He doesn't want it for himself. It makes him feel uncomfortable and he doesn't want it for the rest of the game development community. He wants it to feel more like they're craftspeople and they have jobs to do and it takes an army to build this stuff. And he, and I, you know, that I, I, I am of a mind that we need to kind of know the individuals so we can have some familiarity with the humans, but also the the work that it takes. Mm-hmm. But I, that really struck me, you know? And I, I think Tommy brought that into the content that he makes. And what I would say to your listeners is to... Because um, I still get notes. <laughs> I still, I have people find our classic reviews, and they say, "What the hell is Tommy thinking?" You know, from twenty five years funny. ago, and people yeah. still quote, you know, underneath yeah. the thing. That guy knows bull. He's well, like Smash Brothers so- was
0: his big notorious one. Yeah, no, oh, yeah. Smash he, well, I didn't and like, like, in like Smash a Brothers. Three out and- of ten.
1: I didn't like it either when it first came out. Nintendo. I, was I wasn't so a big
0: fan of it either, but I could appreciate what it was. And I could look beyond the fact that I didn't enjoy it to understand that other people are going to really, really like it. Um, yeah. And I think Tommy was just like, it sucks three out of 10. Like that's what I remember about it anyway.
1: Our, our challenge that particular, that particular week is I think we looked at a new dead or alive fighting game. Oh, and then, yeah. and then we had smash, smash. brothers. And, yep. and it. so it was like, <laughs> I was like, why does this exist? You know, it was like, it wasn't. It just didn't hit with us. It took me a few iterations of the game for me to kind of appreciate but it. But even really on the show, you it. liked it more, a lot more than Tommy did. Not on that particular episode. I we thought both, you did. No, on on well, on the first one that we reviewed together, we both got a lot of hate mail. But okay. I, what I encourage your listeners to do is to watch those reviews with Tommy, with the understanding that this guy had already had a decade in the business before. I asked him to be on the show and he yeah. had all of this really cool insight. And Tommy's such a hustler that I don't think he, I mean, he likes to self celebrate, you know, like he's, yeah. he, he, he's, he's accomplished a
0: lot. He should, <laughs> its amazing. but he, he has. Done.
1: And, and that's, yeah. what's incredible. You know, I was playing um, uh, Spider-Man cause I've been doing uh, a lot of retro stuff recently. I was mm-hmm. playing the Spider-Man uh, PlayStation one game and there's my brother, man. He's in the credits. He did all the music and sound yeah. effects for the thing. His and name pops like, up
0: all the time.
1: Yeah and and like I know him as a hard working yeah. fun crazy dude to kind of partner with and 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 kibitz with but the guy doesn't stop and he's yeah. done a, t- a tremendous he's done some amazing amount amazing stuff yep yeah. yeah absolutely but let me let me talk about the uh, reviews on the run story cuz what happened with Judgment Day is uh uh so Discovery Science really dug EP uh-huh. and so I went out there in August i went out to maryland in august of uh, 2001 and i met with executives from all of their digital networks it was me and a room filled with um you know production people that were in charge of all the networks and i pitched them reviews on the run as a half hour show we were going to take it out of ep so back in 2001 we kind of had the idea because we knew people really like that as mm-hmm. a segment and I pitched them a show called Entertainment Tomorrow. And, uh, Entertainment Tomorrow? Yeah. And Paramount was- Tomorrow. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's funny because EP Daily really became, it was, it, it, what Entertainment Tomorrow was as a pitch is what EP Daily really evolved into when, when we went daily in 2008. Um, but Discovery loved it. They loved the pitch. They loved the proposal. And I had a verbal green light. And so in August of uh, 2001, I went home, we were gonna have three half hour shows with Discovery Science. we were gonna own Friday nights. It was gonna be our production company just cranking on all wow. of these shows. big deal. And it was, it was amazing. And then 9-11 happened and everything changed. Yeah. The content in our seventh season had to be really adapted for this very sensitive, obviously sensitive marketplace out there. The viewership didn't want to see buildings exploding. And, and we were launching x and we couldn't show people shooting guns. Yeah.
0: We were supposed so, to make a video game show without showing guns being fired.
1: So you're in that Good same, everybody that. was affected. Everybody yeah. was, right? You yeah. know, but it filtered into our video game content. All the executives kind of shifted their things. The guy that was in charge of, uh, discovery science said I'm because there was a plane that dropped in in Washington right so close right. to home close yeah. to not not far from uh where discovery was they're still and, there uh, actually, I think they're still there yeah. yeah and they were amazing people to work with but uh basically everything changed and everybody shifted internally and then there with the appetite wasn't there and so it was like oh Christ we're we're gonna wrap up our season and then who knows what's gonna happen and uh you know, somewhere in the course of us delivering those shows over those next six months, I met with Charles Hirshhorn and we hit it off and he apologized to me that he was the head of of G4 for those who
0: don't know, by the way.
1: Yeah. 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 And, and he, uh, he said, I'm, I'm making a, a 24 hour network. That's basically electric playground, but it's across 24 hours. Yeah, and I am sorry I'm doing that. And I said, well, and I but I said, I, well, I'm, I'm grateful and thank you for visiting. I, there's no way I'm building a network. This is amazing. And how do we work together? And so the first thing that we came up with was was uh, spinning reviews on the run as a, a show with them. But they wanted to call it Judgment Day.
0: Yep. And then that ran until 2005 on G4, correct?
1: Yeah. When X-Play came into the network, it was a, a question of like, we own these properties. We were already, I think from the, you know, I don't know what the executives were quite going through, but this was my read on it is that they were still kind of struggling to find the audience and get the subscribers and keep their carriers happy. And um, they owned two competing Well, they had were airing two competing video game review shows, but they owned X Play, and I think that was the decision. Even though we rated well, and you did rate well, absolutely, yep. People like to see both the shows. I feel like that was
0: misguided, in all honesty.
1: Um, Oh, thanks, man.
0: Removing Judgment Day for some of the other shows that continued to air on the network. A lot of that stuff goes to talent contracts. Um, that they had contracts with the talent for the other shows and they're like, are we just gonna cancel their show and pay their contracts out With the, then they're not working here anymore. There's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes there, but as somebody who saw the ratings every week, uh, and saw how your show rated and it, your show was different from X play X play was like just straight down the line game reviews with sketch comedy. They were completely yeah. different shows. Um, there honestly wasn't a ton of overlap in the audiences. There were X-Play fans and there were judgment day fans. Um, and it was one of the top rated shows on the network. And I was like, why would you ever get rid of one of the top rated shows? It made no sense to me. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. I, at that t- point in my career, I was not in a position of power or I, w- I was completely powerless. over <laughs> The G4 did, um, but you know what? It didn't, you guys just shrugged it off because you kept producing the show. How many, more years than did uh, reviews on the run end up going judgment day as
1: a, as a separate show not only did we keep producing it but we expanded it we had this fantastic partnership that evolved with Rogers in Canada mm-hmm. uh, who was carrying g4 Canada and so they needed Canadian content and they needed um, and we were based in Canada and so yep. they needed uh, a production company that was sort of experienced with this stuff and and could speak to this audience and so we kept rocking and rolling with with reviews on the run until 2014. Yep. as a separate half hour and not only did we keep rocking with it we went we it was our second daily show so in 2008 we we went daily with electric playground yep which opened up which a whole bunch insane. of different avenues
0: that's insane
1: the level uh, well of it was the
0: ramp up there much must, must have just been almost overwhelming it,
1: it was amazing it was uh exactly it was a lot of work for sure i don't i don't want to diminish it but it was exactly the trajectory that we should have been on to be on the air that much because you know, especially daily.
0: so i left in 2006 and went over to mtv to work on game trailers and it, almost as soon as i left then x-play went daily and yeah. honestly that was kind of the beginning of the end for that show they the show ended up creating another like i don't know 500 episodes or something like that but the ratings at that point started falling off because it had lost some of its charm because there was no way you could produce enough sketch comedy for a daily show you can't do that that in the studio yeah so our secret sauce was
1: yeah it became entertainment
0: tonight for video games and it kind of lost what made it special and what made people tune in to every episode it made every episode in all honesty in some cases like landmark episodes so um I see where one, I know I knew the people still who were working there and they were telling me it was just grueling, just trying yeah. to get one, just getting enough content. It was hard enough when I was there and we did three episodes a week, making sure we had enough games just to fill out those episodes like,
1: yeah, you know, we're yeah, predominantly
0: a yeah. review show. And you we know, were reviewing well, like every crappy little handheld game and just whatever we could, you know, to make sure there was content for the episodes.
1: Yeah. And I, and, and honestly, we, you know, your team and my team or your ex team and my team were, were, you know, facing the threat of all this new content that was being generated online, whether it was, you know, early video streams and whatever was happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think we had two really great things in our corner and we, we actually, we pivoted away, um, from just thinking of ourselves as, as a a video game show. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, You know, video games were what EP was about. That was the heart and soul. It was very clear to see from every viewer there. But we really embraced this idea that we were bringing everybody on. We were bringing everybody in. We were family entertainment. You know, Mm -hmm. grandparents could sit down and watch the show. Um, And as we went daily, we went even further into that. So we had more entertainment reporting. We were on junkets and set visits and and red carpets and and um, and games were always the through line through all of that. it was always the major chunk of the program. And I was nervous because, you know, up until 2008, we had been this very focused video game program and I didn't know for sure. But in my mind, I thought this is what consumers are, 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 you know, entertainment fans are doing now. They're carving up their time between games and movies and eventually streaming shows. Netflix loved yeah. working with EP because all of the traditional news magazines that were out there had rules that they couldn't cover Netflix because it was the competitor the com- competition. to- Competition, yeah. Yeah, to the, all the cable networks and all the, the studio broadcasters. But we could cover anything that was cool. Everything yeah. cool every single day. Again, going and back so- to
0: intelligently naming it Electric Playground. Instead of gaming yeah, well, playground or whatever.
1: And and honestly, I called it that because I, I, in my mind, thought one day maybe we'll have a location. We'll have a physical space where people will come and, and uh, um you know, they'll play and they'll learn about the business. And we'll, you know, and mm-hmm. I just thought that would be a great space. Yeah, was you smart. Know? Yeah. Was that the height of your business
0: as far as electric playground, as far as number of employees, yep. budget, all that kind of stuff?
1: Yep. We had a a sustained sort of production budget. And then also we were really rocking with uh, behind the scenes documentaries as well, because we were out in the field all the time. So we're doing a lot of like we did the making of Arkham Asylum and the making of Metal Gear Solid 4. Um, All of it just sort of fit in and and clicked together and made a lot of sense. And it was it was rocking and rolling and working quite well. And so we evolved into that. And then G4 died. And it was like, oh, shit. Yeah. So 24,
0: 2014 G4 folds. Yeah, and that's also when reviews on the run. I guess that's when it ended its run,
1: correct? Yeah, well, I knew that they were they were going to go that it was going to fold in 2012. And I had one of the execs. I can't remember who you told knew that me. G4
0: was going to fold in 2012. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I knew what was going to I knew that it was bad for games. And I still think that it's bad yeah, for games. Game it Games had an ESPN. You know, yeah. they had they had this this uh, this brand that could stretch across Um, media to kind of focus all eyes. It's just like E3. Like For these people that are running E3 to squander this opportunity for whatever reason, I don't know the details, but for for the business and the E3 people to not see eye-to-eye to to make this an incredibly important thing in North America is ridiculous. It is. And it's very analogous to what happened with G4. And I hope that the new G4 can kind of find its way to... Uh, bring everybody back together again because I, I think there is still a place for well um, composed, interesting, intelligent, entertaining conversation around all of this stuff. And I knew that once G4, uh, it, you know, became public that G4 was going away and all of these different sort of internal things became external. Um, that it was going to be bad news for us, you know. And that was really freaking hard for me, man. It was really hard. It was hard to let go of people because we'd been on this upward path for a very long time. Yep. That's also uh, and the where internet YouTube was happening. Just really started taking over. Exactly.
0: I mean, YouTube killed game trailers, you know. Yeah. Game trailers folded around the same time
1: and <laughs> Yeah, but you know, what's so stupid is that the broadcasters could have just said, "You know what? Let's work with especially when you're dealing with information. You know, it's not like you can lock information, you can lock entertainment and you can kind of get people to pay for entertainment, but information should be shared. And if you've got access to information, then you, you, you don't kind of put it behind a walled garden and Viacom really struggled with that. It was insane. Oh well, yeah, you we can't,
0: were, Viacom was suing YouTube for like $3 billion. So Game crazy. trailers didn't even, we didn't even have a YouTube channel. Yeah.
1: <laughs> When I know. YouTube I remember all of that. <laughs>
0: it's, well It was crazy. We had,
1: we had a deal with, uh, with a broadcaster that wouldn't let us put our stuff online until a week after it had aired on TV. And we have yeah. a daily show. We're yeah. talking about topical things with the news in it. And I mean, we struggle with that ourselves right now because
0: we're supported by Patreon and our subscribers at Sifted.net. And there's, it's a very fine line to walk between, okay, how long is the right delay? Because if it's too long, your subscribers and your patrons uh, are are okay, but then the content isn't timely. If it's too short, your subscribers and your patrons get angry because they're like, what am I paying for this for if it's going up on YouTube two days later? So it's a tough line to walk. You alluded to the relaunch of G4.
1: How do you think that's going to go? I don't know yet. Uh, You know, I have had some discussions with them. I would like to find a way to work with them. I feel like it's, sh- we should, uh, but I don't know if we're going to, you know, um, I announced that there's no home for EP with them this year. Cause everybody asks me every single mm-hmm. day. Um, and I pitched them something that I thought was again, incredibly reasonable. Um, I, I do feel like people take it for granted a little bit what, we did achieve with the with the programming and i think part of it is we're out of canada and also out of vancouver which isn't even in toronto which is where all of the canadian uh, relationships are like i Mm -hmm. think if we had done the same show out of toronto we probably would be on the air still because tv is so
0: it's volatile
1: yeah it's incredibly volatile and so g4 is going into that space um
0: do you think it can work as it i mean because Essentially, it's I, going I think to be it, a Twitch channel slash YouTube channel at first. Um, it I think, may or may think, not come to Linear TV later.
1: I I really wish I was working with them right now on, on more than just making them a show. Mm-hmm. Because I, I, I learned a hell of a lot. And I don't want to be an executive. I want to be a person that's, you know, at a network. I want to be a person that's uh, building content and shepherding great talent and mm-hmm. great conversation and, you know, still being kind of like an ambassador out to a world that still shrugs its shoulders. Like truthfully, so much content in this in games doesn't register or matter to people. And I think that's the secret to G4 succeeding. If they're just trying to um, sort of be an additive to what's already out there, they're going to get, kind of washed away by the amount of choice that's available to people but if you watched ben at all i did and i felt like there's a couple of mistakes. i I don't want to throw anybody because it's hard and everybody's trying to figure it out industry
0: and and i can also understand where you may want to work with them someday so you don't want to be too critical about them but do you think ben is the blueprint for success for g4 maybe that's a good way to it.
1: No, and, and I yeah. think part of it is the pandemic. I think the 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 struggle to launch a network during a pandemic when people can't really get it's together mm-hmm. is really hard. Um, but I also feel like don't cut off your demographic, don't cut it off. And I felt like that's what G4 was doing, quite frankly, in in the initial run. You know, especially in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Like
0: when you it, say cut off your demo, it, do you think Van was aiming too young?
1: Yeah, I mean they're they're looking for this, and and I worry that G four might be doing this too. This kind of sweet spot where they're hip and cool, and they know they're really smart, and they get all of this, and they love it, and they're they're pure, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to like fuck, let everybody in on the boat, you know, let everybody in.
0: Do you don't, think don't, that
1: don't, maybe part of it is just? I think maybe TV execs believe that no
0: one wants to see older folks like us on television or in this well, type of a, content
1: that that's endemic across media in general. But, um, the truth of it is, is that the, the, but they're forgetting that a lot of gamers are our age, right? (laughs) Well, and it's, it's not even gamers, man. Like, like it was a profound thing to go from a cable network, which is where we, we sort of grew to. And even in Canada, we were on the space channel here and we were on MTV Canada and, and, uh, uh, G4 Canada, mm-hmm. but then to flip the dial. And then we were on low, you, you know, regular broadcast stations that you didn't even need a cable yeah, connection to, rabbit to watch. Ears. yeah And we were on every night at 11 o'clock against the local news and, and all of the cities across the country. It was every day. So it was a very profound thing for me to have this kind of awareness from a certain crowd to walking down the street Anywhere in Vancouver or Calgary or Toronto or whatever, and every age knew who I was. If you're not creating content in that direction, and you have the budget and the people and the and and uh, the resources to do that, and you're just trying to, you know, get to hit people that like a Twitch stream. You, I think good you're gonna, luck with that. You're going to be in trouble. If you're aiming for linear television, which
0: I don't even know if that's really the right decision for the new G4 or Venn. Um, I don't know if that's the right decision for any production at this point <laughs> is to aim for linear television, even though the profit margins there are much bigger um, than they are yeah. in digital. But so you're saying that maybe these shows should try, should try to be a
1: little more casual and appeal to a wider market. I don't think you you don't put labels on it. You just make content that's that's good, you know. But the the problem,
0: Victor, is that there's so much content out there now. It's like when we when I was working on X Play and you were working on Judgment Day at G4, there weren't that many options, particularly for content around games that had a big budget and was really polished. Now, yes, you know, a kid with a couple thousand dollars. He can produce stuff that looks real good, man. He can get his monthly like oh, yeah, Adobe sure. Premiere subscription, and, and he you can have make to stuff factor that, looks that as into good your budget. Yeah, it's-
1: you have to factor that into your budgets. But what isn't being made are very quick and easy to digest, um, especially in this space. Magazine shows that really don't waste people's time and give them a lot to kind of chew on, and uh, give people a lot of entry points in to be entertained and surprised. And that's the secret. I keep hearing people don't want to watch TV on the internet and, or on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I think they really do. And I think, you know, NBC is proof, in, is proof positive of that. NBC has been making a fortune with their YouTube videos that they post on there, whether it's SNL clips or the MSNBC clips or whatever. Um, and that's just YouTube, right? Like people have unlimited choice. So don't give them, the, don't, Reflect that back, cut it down and be incredibly shrewd, but be inclusive. And uh, um, that's the secret, you know, give them something of real value that doesn't waste their time. And, you know, I, I just make it good. I think, do, that's do the, think that's the real secret.
0: Do you think experience is, is valued? in our profession as far as the audience is concerned. Do you think that the audience cares that you and I have been reviewing games for 20 plus years? Or do you think they care more about the guy who just started his new YouTube channel, but looks like them and is closer to their age? Um, I think, I think all of that is true. Cause you don't get us. It doesn't seem like there's a Cisco and Ebert for video games is what I'm getting at. Like it doesn't seem like there's a, a thirst for that type of content. Like there is for other
1: entertainment It'll mediums. Take, it, it would take um, either a very well put together partnership from the get-go where everything was kind of shared uh, in that re- relationship, in that partnership, um, and whatever kind of production elements were put into place, if that was all. For, thinking like that um, and getting to a point of making content to uh, appeal to a lot of people. So it'd be a, a road to go down, um, and YouTube and Twitch don't really engender that, you know. I think a lot of the teams that exist in that space that maybe have Patreon deals and things like that come from television or some kind of team-based narrative in terms of, uh, um, you know, showing people how to do this with a collective. You know, you look at kind of funny or Easy Allies, and there's a few other groups out there that have figured out how to uh, uh, all leave together and start something fresh. And those kind of reflect a little bit in that venue, so um I think there is an appetite for that real discussion, um and I think to get to that you um and I always encourage this with friends that are out there that are content creators that really work together is to just you know create that partnership and make it about friendship and make it about trust and respect and see how long you can go um, and how far you can go, but have a great time with it, you know because mm-hmm. I think. On the other side, and you probably know this too, is that there's a loneliness with this constant, um, putting of material out there with the reflection that we both come from this sort of group dynamic and working with a lot of people. And we can still get that in, you know, the content that we make on interviews and things like that, but there's something else. There's another element that, that, um, I think it's incumbent on companies like Venn and G4 to really establish and any television production out there is to really spend the money to find a good assemblage of people to build something of uh, of real value there. Don't just replicate and try to kind of make the the, uh, you know, the TV friendly living room version of of what everybody's already watching Mm -hmm. and try to fake that. I think you should argue with
0: what Venn has been.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think by virtue of the fact that they've had to produce and launch based on dates in the middle of a pandemic, I think yeah, they've done. Help. Yeah, I think they've done as as good as they can. Plus, it hurts. I think to be based out of L.A. to be, um, I, I just think it does. You know, because you're, and this is what you know. People at G4 told me back in the day is your your budgets are pitted against what everybody else in town is paying, and if you're you don't have the ad dollars or the subscription to uh, justify those expenses. I think budget definitely comes into play and you need, you need to hire people that aren't just phoning the job in. It's not just a gig right? And there's a lot of that in LA. There's a lot of that in Vancouver. There's a lot of it in all of the major hubs out there. I mean, that's
0: how entertainment works, let's be honest. Um, G4 was an anomaly that we were a family. Like, the team that worked on X-Play, we were all best friends. You know, when we got off work, we went out drinking together. Like, it wasn't like we were all just these guns for hire that showed up to work and then went to this other gig that we did in some other part of LA and some other unrelated sort of entertainment field. It was... We worked together every day, all day. And even when we were done working all day together, we still wanted to spend time with, with each other afterwards. And you're right. That does come through in the content. And I feel like, at least in Ven, in particular, they I think they the way they approached it was, hey, how many followers do each of these people have on social media? Um, yeah. We add them all up. If we get 15% of their people showing up, that's a high rating. And it just doesn't really work that way. Because you're right. You don't have that sort of family feeling in the content where these people are legitimately tight with each other and vibe off of each other in a natural way. Yeah. Um and I think that is one thing that YouTube has done is it has taught the the viewer how to spot that, how to spot yeah. the fake and how to figure out if these people really like each other, really vibe off of each other, or if they've just been thrown together as kind of this potpourri of talent or social media followings uh, and trying to generate an audience from it. So um, I think there's been a lot of good that's come out of U- out of things like YouTube and Twitch. But I also think it's made it inherently more difficult for th- operations like G4 and Venn to succeed. Um, yeah. Because you're right with the way the production model works in L.A. in particular. That's just not how it is. Nobody is, like, full-time. Nobody is, like, coming into the office at 8 in the morning and leaving at 7 p.m. That's just not how it works here anymore. And I think it is counterproductive to creating content that this new audience really will care about. So
1: yeah I mean the the only way to overcome that is to um be really focused on the d- the direction of the show you know and to make yeah. something really special. If a show like the Queen's Gambit can come out and be just a blockbuster <laughs> around the world, yeah um I believe that good programming about anything can come out and be very successful.
0: agreed. You can make a show right? about chess that everybody wants to
1: watch uh, and there and there's uh. honestly a million different uh, you know examples of that what there isn't a million of is good programming. That's really focused and smartly put together. And I I honestly believe that by narrow casting it just to games, you're also, and this is coming from a true blue guy that bleeds, you know, nerd juice. Okay. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I bleed, I bleed pixels. Yeah. Like I love this industry and I love video games, but I feel like, the best way to communicate around games is to pit them right beside everything else that people consume except for the garbage gossipy shit there's right. enough of that you don't need to throw that into your game coverage you need to throw the beautiful craftsmanship the artistry of movies and television and and uh, comics and all these other things that that draw people's fascination and attention and you put games right beside that, that's, I mean, that's what EP became, you know? And and mm-hmm. I didn't know that, brother. Like, it took me a long time to learn that. And when I saw the ratings, like one of the amazing things about our syndication deal, uh, you know, when we were making EP Daily and we, ha- we had these distributors that were a good job at placing us, not a good, not, didn't do a good job at bringing in revenue, mostly also because a lot of ad dollars were shifting to YouTube. And also mm-hmm. we were, uh, you know, an independent production company. We weren't owned by Paramount or whatever. Um, but I saw that people were watching the show and it was rating well and then more people would be with the show in its second 15 minutes and that meant that we were drawing people. They didn't know who I was. They didn't know. Yeah. yeah, they didn't know what EP was. I didn't know. But what they saw was like the coolest shit that people make and people that were really into it and really having a good time being able to communicate that stuff and I think that has real cachet and real value and I, I think it should be smeared. You know, I think that you definitely need to hit all of the distribution avenues that exist in in with social video but um uh it should be on on television for as long as tv exists and uh you know and so yeah i would love to work with these people that that saw me more than as a guy that made a show before you know or as a Well, i certainly
0: view you in that light (laughs) Yeah, he <laughs> was much more than just a guy who hosted a TV show. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but I, I mean, I, I think I'm out of out of sight out of mind a little bit, you know? And mm-hmm. uh I think the other thing too that I, that I have been thinking about this is like why wouldn't you want to work with a, a turnkey solution on getting you stuff that people like right away? Yeah. Um is part of it, I think too, is that I have been hustling for this last five years too. And I've got a lot of new content out there and it's a different, um, you, you know, you've adapted model. your style
0: as well to the
1: yeah, changing times. Yeah, totally. But I've been so um, busy with building stuff that I, I don't think people have been able to, the people that really like the content haven't been able to miss me because <laughs> here I am, I'm making new stuff still because yeah. I'm passionate about it. And I think that's been part of what G4 has been wanting to do as well as to kind of bring stuff back that people haven't seen in a little while. And, uh, you know, because I've definitely been reflecting on it. It's like, well, why they have their own things that are going on, which I I don't envy. You know, it's not easy. I just wonder how long that nostalgia
0: play will sustain is my big question. question. It's like the first week. Sure. Hey, here's Kevin and maybe Olivia doing Attack of the Show again. Hey, here's Adam doing X-Play again. But ultimately, it's going to be the shows that bring them back yeah. again for week two and week three and on and on and on. So, and the,
1: the only, you know, I saw this with X play a little bit too, especially as it went daily is that it, there was a lot of uh, what was the rumor site right now it's reset era, but what was it back then? Neo back then. Yeah. There was a, I felt like X play was like in a competition with Neo in terms yeah. of trying to break stuff. And I thought even then I was like, why you're a TV show. Don't, don't try to beat the internet. Make, well, a I think show. they saw internet video kind of
0: eating their lunch at that point. And they were trying to figure out a way to sort of stem the tide and be relevant. And I think that's why they went daily in the first place was because yeah. they're like, we can't compete with these guys if we're only doing three shows a week because this stuff is happening at a breakneck pace now. And so I understood why they did it, but I do agree that I think the approach was maybe a little, little off.
1: Yeah. I Um, I mean, it was obviously say, because it didn't yeah.
0: succeed, so it didn't yeah. work. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, you know, I I think we there were other things that that factored into what happened with us because Rogers was very happy with the programming as well, but they spent billions of dollars on hockey rights mm. for broadcast right around the time that. Uh, We actually had, this is so funny, we had an EP radio running. We had a a minute spot on the radio every day talking about some of the cool things that we were covering in the show. And I got a call one day from the radio station saying, "Yeah, we 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 need to get that minute back from you guys because we got to put a hockey minute into, into the mean, show." That's TV, <laughs> though. I mean, I can't say
0: many times I was in an edit in an edit bay, and they're like, "We got to shave forty-five seconds off of this because the lead-in <laughs> is a little longer, and more people are watching the lead." And you're literally like shaving frames off of like stand-ups and whatever to yeah. get that,
1: those seconds back that you need. It's just that's, that's invaluable show. experience for you, though, brother, because you were not only making the content, you were Uh, You know, really understanding how it it all left the creative space and actually got to the the business space. Yeah, yeah, and into the into the business space, and and dealing with all of the carrier carrier approvals. And I know that there was always yeah. You learn how to cut content to the
0: quick. Um, Yeah, (laughs) seriously, like you start to figure out where you can shave a second here, a second there, really quickly on a show that a producer worked on for like two days and felt like every second that was left in there mattered. And after you do it for a while, you can go in there and you can find a second here, there, there, boom, boom. We're down to like whatever 21, 30 now that we needed to get to for this other bump for this lead. It's just, yeah.
1: You You learn when people are connected to you. And and people look back at television timing with, uh, I think- It's absurd now. (laughs) Well, yeah, it it is absurd and and i think uh, you know a huge chunk of the attraction of internet video was that the freedom of time and people could just keep going and you could make anything that you wanted but now there's so much of it mm-hmm. and there's so many ways that people can just be consumed with watch i i think the novelty of having some time restrictions would be um, well received it especially might be. in this space you know the
0: algorithm plays a lot on youtube how you get sucked into one topic and then there's all the recommended videos there that take you down the yeah. rabbit
1: hole for yeah. good
0: things and for bad things.
1: Um, well, and that's the other the thing, double-edged thing I, think sword. YouTube, I think YouTube is quite complicit in the, uh, you know, their apathy and their lack of kind of really pair, you know, choosing a direction for how editorial gets served up on their on their services. Um, they don't care about any of that. All they can they about should is that you watch the next video so they serve another ad. I mean, and, and they should because they have the they have this mass amount of eyeballs. You know, and look at how many times it's bit them in the ass. They have a lot of
0: responsibility, these. to be honest. Yeah, with and you. look at all of these what they idiots they do that, that, have that just, next viewing yes. experience. It's a lot of power for a media company. And to hold.
1: and they should be, you know, not only I think more empathetic to that power and smarter with it. Um, but they should be working with these content creators to help them make their best stuff as well, not yep. just in terms of how it's going to monetize best. Yep. You know, but also like re- bring real value into a viewer's experience with all of this. You know, Agreed. like they are making so much money that they should not be apathetic about it. They should be very um, uh, they
0: proactive, be very
1: proactive and <laughs> yeah. smart, and and they should be arbiters. They should be like. They, they should be tastemakers in a way, you know, and pick, pick the right best. They want everything and... to be automated though. You know, they don't, don't... want to
0: have to pay human beings to do anything there. That's just the way it, I mean, that's the way a lot of companies are, you know, it's, it's very they, demographic, content. It's democratic. Like, yeah. It's very, I mean, it, some it, people don't want human beings doing this stuff because they're like, Oh, well, what does that person believe? Or are they going to, you know, impart their beliefs into how they're doing the job? Like it's, it's such a slippery slope anymore. Um, letting humans do anything. It's like, everybody wants robots to do stuff.
1: now. <laughs> well, that, cause they're that's like, if great... you have
0: a human do it, then their biases come into play and we don't want uh, that.
1: So that's my great fear with all of this automation. Uh, it, you know, are we going to end up it's, it's robots making games for robots. Is that what this <laughs> yeah, is all going to lead? Possible. <laughs> and then making TV shows hosted by robots for robots. <laughs> it is possible. Uh, it does feel
0: sometimes <laughs> like we're headed in that direction. <laughs> (laughs) That's for sure. (laughs) Well, look, even with our open format, we do eventually have to close out the show. And to close out every episode of Three Night Weekend, we ask every guest, what are they playing, what are they watching, and what are they drinking this weekend?
1: Oh, okay. Um, Oh, man, I can't pronounce the whiskey... Uh, I was drinking Robert Burns whiskey. Um, okay. My wife I- and I are big fans of Outlander. And every episode of Outlander, they have a wee dram. And uh, <laughs> and we love Scotland. We've been to Scotland a few times and we okay. love it over there. And there's actually a new show with the guy from Outlander. Two two of the stars from Outlander, they tour through Scotland. And so that's become a bit of a weekly tradition. We'll sit down and have... Uh, we, we just got this new scotch that I can't even pronounce. But Robert Burns whiskey, I can... And it's very, it's very nice in terms of games that I'm playing. Um, I am playing cyber shadow, like crazy, uh, on the Nintendo switch. That's going to be the, probably the next thing that I actually put some thoughts in, into a video and review. Uh, I've been playing the Neo Geo pocket color, uh, and, um, uh, I'm going to be downloading monster Hunter rise right now. Uh, so yeah, I'm always, uh, you know, there's always a bunch of games in rotation and what was the last one? What are you watching this weekend? What am I watching? Uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Absolutely love it. And I guess Men in Kilts is the uh, is the show that I watch with my wife. Great. And Vic, where can people find you? Where can they find you on Twitter, your YouTube channel, all that sort of stuff? OK, well, on Twitter, it's Victor underscore Lucas. And on uh, YouTube, our our YouTube channel is uh, e- uh, EPN TV. So it's YouTube dot com slash EPN TV and our uh, show and you know, electric playground info pages, epn.tv. All right, Victor.
0: I literally could have talked to you about the industry for another like two hours.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I really could.
0: It's always fascinating to speak with you about this because your experience is so vast and so varied, but uh, unfortunately I have to close it out, but thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we really appreciate it. Now that Vic has let you in on his weekend plans, it's time to figure it out for yourself.
1: Games!
0: Finally, people. There are some big games to play this weekend. Actually, a couple big games. Actually, three big games to play this weekend. Can you even believe it? After the dry spell we've been going through in March. First up, Monster Hunter Rise, the brand new Monster Hunter game. It is a Switch exclusive. Built for the Switch, I would add. It looks and plays great. Initial reviews have been sky high. Next up. It Takes Two, the next game from Joseph Fuck the Oscars Faris, is yet another clever cooperative game. Again, for this game, reviews, sky high, 9.0 Metacritic right now. Pretty shocking, to be honest, though I did draft it in my video game Fantasy League, so I'm pretty happy about that. And next up, a third big game coming out this weekend, Balon Wonderworld, which is a brand new game from Yuji Naka. Wasn't too impressed with that, with the beta that we played. But we only got to play a slice of the game, so we're hoping that maybe as we get deeper, it will get better. And also, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 launches for PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series consoles this weekend. And then finally, JRPG Octopath Traveler launches for Xbox platforms. TV and film! A little bit of a slow weekend for TV and film, but with all those games, who's going to be watching any of this stuff anyway? First up, The Irregulars Season 1 launches on Netflix. It's set in the Sherlock Holmes universe. And it focuses on a bunch of street kids who solve street crimes. Certainly a more modern twist on an old IP. Next up, The Mighty Ducks Game Changer. Season 1 debuts on Disney+. Plus. The show actually doesn't follow The Mighty Ducks because The Mighty Ducks have turned into a bunch of scumbags. <laughs> they have become sort of the epitome of the competitive youth sports culture. And the show focuses on a group of players who break away from the team to start their own squad. Uh, Next is Bad Trip, which is a movie that debuts on Netflix. It's a road trip comedy starring Eric Andre. And then finally this weekend, Tina, a biopic about the popular singer Tina Turner, launches on HBO Max. Not a lot of mainstream releases this weekend as far as albums are concerned, but some pretty good indie stuff. Uh, First up, Juju, which is actually one of Ryan Stevens from Game Trailer's Day's favorite bands. It has a new album this week called Oh No. They're very hard to describe. They're they're dark and strange and experimental, but if you're a fan of a lot of other indie bands, there are guest appearances up and down the track list on this album. One thing I would say about this group is some songs are amazing and some songs can be hard to listen to, but certainly something unique and probably something like you've never heard before. Next up, a band called Floating Points. They haven't released an album in a really long time. Um, And the new album is called Promises. And it's actually kind of a fusion of their music, which is like downbeat, mellow, electronic stuff, kind of like the orb and jazz. In fact, some huge jazz musicians are playing on this. It is getting really high reviews from critics. They're calling it the most relaxing album maybe ever released. So if you need something to kind of kick back to, Floating Points Promises is probably a good pick. And then finally, if you're looking for something a little more hard-driving from your music this weekend, the new album from Death From Above called Is For Lovers uh, launches today. If you're a fan of the White Stripes and kind of that stripped-down rock sound, they're also a two-piece, just guitar and drums, although their songs are a little more produced than what you get from the White Stripes, but the songs also have tons of hooks. Highly recommended. Sports! All right, this weekend in sports, tonight at 10.05 Eastern, it's the Hawks versus the Golden State Warriors on ESPN. And that is pretty much the only sports stuff happening today, which is good because there's several great games you should be playing instead. Moving on to Saturday on ESPN2, the FIFA World Cup 2022 qualifying is going on pretty much all day long. Uh, Just a little preview of what you're going to get here in a couple years at the next World Cup. Uh, Then March Madness kicks up once again on CBS and TBS. It's been an interesting tournament. Uh, A lot of the big schools have been eliminated already. Uh, I think it just goes to show that the way the season was this year, the conference tournaments and the regular season, really wasn't a great determinant on which of the teams were the best across the entire NCAA. And then if you're into hockey and bad hockey... (laughs) (laughs) the uh, NHL Network has two back-to-back games that are set in basically the Canadian division, uh, which is the Northern Division. At 7 p.m., the Leafs take on the Oilers, uh, and then right after that, the Flames take on the Jets. Moving on to Sunday, more March Madness on CBS and TBS. And then at noon, the Rangers take on the Capitals on NBC if you want to watch some hockey. And then at 3 p.m. on NBC, the WGC Dell Technologies Match Play Finals if you want to watch some golf. It's happening then. And then the Devils take on the Bruins at 5.30 p.m. on NBCSN if you want to cap the night with some more pucks. And then at 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. on Fox Sports 1, it's the 2021 CONCACAF Olympic Qualifying Championship.
1: Esports.
0: Not a bad weekend for esports. In fact, it's a big weekend for Rocket League. There are three major tournaments within RLCS going down across the weekend. And then Rainbow Six Siege, the North American League uh, that unites the U.S. and Canada, is happening, and that's a $125,000 purse. And then lastly... The Overwatch Contenders Season 1, which is kind of like the B League, the first cut below uh, the best players, is happening this weekend. But the purse isn't really second layer. The purse for this tournament is 175 k Big money in esports, man. Alright, thanks for checking out Three Night Weekend on Sifted Games at sifted.net. A huge thanks to Victor Lucas for taking some time out of his busy schedule to speak with me. If you want to get it when it's hot and fresh, head to patreon.com/slash sifted and give us a pledge. Uh, if you give us $4 a month or more, you'll get this every Friday morning. If you want to know when the show is posted for free, follow us on Twitter at Sifted Games. And if you want to reach out to me and suggest future guests, you can find me at Dinfire. I'm Shane Satterfield reminding you that every weekend is a three-night weekend.